0: pack radio get excited y'all
3: welcome back everyone to 12 pack radio your podcast source for pac 12 football news your source for pac 12 gambling news with william hills max meyer more on that in a second and the home of the Bader and college football statistical model with mr rob bauer and this is brian conger thank you for joining us Follow the podcast for free on Twitter at 12 Radio, Pac-12 Radio, and subscribe to the podcast for free. I want to welcome our USC fans. If this is your first time, we appreciate it. And, um, man, if you're a USC fan, you already know that our guest Alicia D'Aratola is awesome. If you are not a USC fan, get excited. This is one of our favorite guests all year. We're going to talk USC. It's USC Day today, and it's also uh, it's also signing day, Rob, which might not be a great time to celebrate if you're a USC fan.
1: <laughs> you have to uh, you have to scroll awfully far down to find USC if you're uh, looking at the rankings.
3: It's It's insane. we will talk a little bit about recruiting rankings. There's some news we want to get to. but Mr. Max Meyer, what's going on and uh, tell us about your new gig?
1: Yeah, so
0: uh,
3: it's tweeted it out so I guess it's official. Uh, I accepted a
0: job offer with William Hill. so my dive into betting has gone full I've, I've gone fully immersed.
3: One second, Max, nice. because like, I'm a degenerate. I, I know who William Hill is and, and what the William Hill establishment means for sports gambling, but maybe some of our listeners don't. So this is a really big deal.
0: Yeah. So William Hill is one of the top bookmakers in the world. Uh, Start off in London, but obviously they're all over. Um, I'll be based in Jersey City, but I'll be taking frequent trips to Vegas, and I'll be traveling all across the country with whatever states have legalized betting and just telling stories about the industry as a whole, and I'm really looking forward to it.
3: Well, with multiple trips to Vegas, I will pray. Oh, a lot of candle for your survival, Max, because <laughs> that is, that's pretty fun. Congratulations. That's really cool. Um, and we'll make sure to uh, share your work on our Twitter feed and make sure to send that stuff out. But, uh, guys, let's get into it. Oh, one one more thing. A thing that we're doing on Sharp College Football, if you haven't been checking these out, we've been doing is going through each Pac-12 school's coordinators. And we're starting with the changes. So we're you know Todd Orlando, right? We have a bunch of USC fans that are listening. Um USC gets Todd Orlando as their defensive coordinator. What we've done is gone back and taken a look at all of the event statistics throughout his career and shown what he's been able to do at other schools. And it's a really fascinating. And we talked about this the last couple of podcasts about the hire and what it meant. But it's kind of nice to see the stats out there. We do beta rank and S P plus so you can see him side by side. And beta rank is more of a, a points per uh, drive model and s plus is more of a yards per drive so it's kind of cool to compare the, the both but but if you're just looking for uh really good content right now on these coordinators because they're so important to the pac-12 um conference and your team in general uh, check it out sharp rob I'll, I'll throw that to you anything else to say on that before we get into just so just a bizarre move out of out of tempe here
1: yeah, so uh, this is super exciting. We are with the wrapping up of recruiting rankings and <clears throat> Bill Connolly is committed to get his returning production numbers out on Friday. I should have projections for next season, uh, hopefully over the weekend. Um, so we will have lots to talk about then, uh, about college football. So that's exciting. I'll have all 130 teams. Um, and I'll reach out to the folks that, um, that uh, I buy the data from and see if I can get a schedule file. And if I can, and last year I got an incomplete schedule file early, uh, I will be able to run out some win projections too, which is always fun because everyone likes to, uh, it's the part where everybody's like, you're an idiot. My team's going to win 10 games. Um, So (laughs) we'll see.
3: (laughs) No, there's a lot of stuff that we're going to continue to talk about, but let's get right into it here. I want to talk about this report. and, And I think it broke from Pete Thamel, who was saying that, ASU's defensive coordinator, who they just had promoted to def- to defensive coordinator, Tony White, has moved on to become the D.C. at Syracuse. And this totally jumped out for me, guys. And, and of course, you have Marvin Lewis is being bumped up to the defensive coordinator and co-defensive coordinator with Antonio Pierce. I'm assuming that Marvin Lewis is going to be more of the play caller, but I could be wrong. Uh, we'll definitely keep an eye on that. but. Max, just the jump from Tempe to Syracuse, uh, the culture shock, the weather shock, just the shock in general of him going. What would you think?
0: Yeah, I mean, this has been now the second straight off season. While granted, he uh, will not as high profile as Cook Kingsbury, but definitely a short stay uh, with his coordinator position in Tempe. And uh, Syracuse, I mean... I think that they are a pretty stable program under Dino Babers, but they, they were just, they were really terrible last year. Um, Just going the the quarterback switch uh, from DeVito to, I don't even remember who their quarterback was. Uh, It really slowed down the offense, but actually one thing about Syracuse, they they have like incredibly strong special teams, but anyway, um, no, I, I think it's a lateral move, but you know, some, sometimes money calls, if, if that's the case for Syracuse. Uh, he did say that he wanted to be closer uh, to his family, and that's in Queens. But Queens isn't exactly <laughs> that close <laughs> to Syracuse as someone who lives about 10 minutes away from Queens. Uh, it's it's a long way from Syracuse.
3: It's always so. like when those transfers, you know, for, as grad transfers, particularly when the— Regulations weren't as lax. Like, oh, I got a sick grandmother in Minnesota, and he's transferring to like University of Illinois. (laughs) You're like, yeah, it's the Midwest, but you know, it's a little bit different. Uh, (laughs) I I don't know, Rob. What's it up for you for this? It'll be interesting because it's hard for us to analyze how Marvin Lewis and Antonio Pierce will do. Obviously, Lewis coming from the NFL, Antonio Pierce coming from the high school ranks and being a really solid recruiter at ASU. But what did you think initially about White moving to Syracuse? Because we didn't even have a lot of data on him either.
1: No, I mean, he was a big question mark. I mean, and I, I think a lot of folks uh, and some ASU folks bristled at me. I had a, one of the ASU podcasts like clap back at me a little, try to clap back at me a little bit on it that I said he was a question mark. But if you've never called plays before, it's an actual skill. And we he was a question mark cutting into the season. Um, and I thought, you know, like at least you have some continuity. I think they like that San Diego State defense, um, you know, the Rocky Long defense that they had brought over. But uh, I actually I, – I saw today that Doug Haler, um, who covers ASU for The Athletic and is a longtime ASU beat writer uh, in the Valley before that, um, had tweeted out that he was uh, – that White himself had said that it was not about more money um, and that it was like a full-on, you know, no extra money change. Um, it is a little odd. I mean, like Syracuse really did fall off the map um, this past year, uh, but their defense, I mean, really has not been good under Babers. It was their offense that really fell off. Um, but yeah, I mean, like as Max, put, like I used to live in New York city and then my, um, my, my partner, her family has some family in like upstate New York, like way out over there near the Ohio border. And I'm like, that is not close at all. Like (laughs) it's a long, long drive. Um, I guess maybe you can catch some flights, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I thought it was I thought it was an interesting move, to to move to to move off to a program like Syracuse, and Syracuse had just hired uh, San Diego State Tony Arnett's, uh, I believe it's Tony Arnett, DC, because uh, they had been interested in this that's uh, Rocky Long defense, and he was hired by Mike Leach uh, at Mississippi State after staying like two weeks in Syracuse. So, ASU came back and poached White. As far as uh, Lewis, I mean, big, big. Question mark, I would say even maybe more than Musgrave at Cal because um, Lewis hasn't called plays on defense since his time as though I mean, they were excellent. I mean, one of the best defenses in NFL history that Baltimore Ravens defense that won the Super Bowl, Um, he he hasn't called plays since then. Uh, That's a while ago. Uh, to put it mildly Pierce, I think is, you know, he's really well thought of as a recruiter. Uh, but two years ago he was still a high school coach. So there, my my guess is that it's Lewis that is going to be calling plays, and and Pierce gets the title bump and promotion and recognition of his really hard work recruiting for the Sun Devils. Um, yeah, but Lewis, I mean, it is going to be a bit of a question mark. I I mean the 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 talk around today was pointing out how much Lewis has been involved in as an analyst, um, that he's there, at, you know, at, at uh, six a.m. working out and then meeting with Herm as or er, you know early as six forty-five a.m um, you know, and going through what's happened to practice. Uh, and he volunteered to, that he wanted this job, which I, I guess I sort of find, a, I sort of find that what I'm interested in with this is, I and mean, cause a lot of call, co- a lot of pro guys sort of shy away from the college jobs because, uh, once you've been in the pros, you realize you don't have to recruit. Uh, and as Herm pointed out today, actually on signing day, like it's a it's 90% of your job in college, and it's 24/7. So um, we'll see. Uh, but I, I think the biggest question is like is, is Lewis as Lewis is a play caller, will they stay with the 3-3-5, um, or you know they were hinting today that they might go to four down lineman because they they feel like they've recruited well enough there for that. Yeah, big I mean big questions for the ASU defense, which was the better of the two units. I mean the offense was atrocious last season, though I I, I would expect Hill improves that a bit.
3: Yeah, Max, you're more of an NFL person. you followed it at Sports Illustrated Gambling. I'm sure you'll follow it at William Hill. What did you think about Lewis? Uh, I always thought the higher of him as the analyst was interesting you know i kind of joked like the new leadership model is being a nice person and hiring interesting people which is kind of what herm has been able to do and found some success with it what do you think about uh, lewis stepping up in calling plays in college which i don't think he's done before i could be wrong maybe he did a long long time ago but really been an nfl guy for the majority of his career
0: well admittedly when herm was first hired by arizona state there was a lot of laughter and and myself included I, i won't go blameless in this And that it was someone who was even out of the NFL coaching ranks for several years. And and now he's jumping into Tempe uh, to be a collegiate coach. And overall, I I, I think it's been a success. So, I mean, Marvin Lewis, I mean, he obviously has the experience. And, I mean, say what you want about his lack of playoff success with the Bengals. But the Bengals haven't been the same franchise before or after uh, his coaching range. So, I mean, I, I think that, I, I think that he's a good football coach and at Arizona state, I mean, I, I don't, I don't see the downside and in, in having someone with all that wisdom and experience, uh, coaching there.
3: Super intriguing. I really want to keep an eye on ASU because they are one of those teams that I think a lot of the media are saying could make that jump. We're a little bit more skeptical here. That doesn't mean we don't think we're, they're going to have a decent year, but, and we'll talk about USC with Alicia, but like USC is just stacked with talent again, and they have the same coaching staff again, so they're also a wild card, but uh, really, really an intriguing hire over there. I
1: mean, you look at ASU's schedule, I mean, you're like, oh, well, I mean, Pac-12 could stink next year, so like ASU could win nine games. That doesn't necessarily mean that ASU might be like objectively good, (laughs) you know, like against like other college, you know, teams from across the country.
3: Yeah, definitely. I'm totally with you on that. Let's go from there. Let's talk about KJ Costello here and Max, I want to give you some credit. So in the last couple podcasts ago, you had talked about KJ Costello jumping to the Palouse to play for Mike Leach as being an intriguing idea. And we all thought, Oh, that, that would make sense. Well, you got it right. It was just happened to be in Starkville instead. Yeah,
0: and I I think it's a smart move uh, for Costello's NFL stock because obviously that's the the reason why he's transferring here just because maybe the Stanford system under Shaw, uh, not this past season, but his uh, junior year, he actually thrived under it. But now with Davis Mills uh, having the, I don't want to say breakout campaign, but he did have some success. Uh, So Costello's starting job, not necessarily guaranteed. And in Starkville, I mean, you team up with a brilliant offensive mind in Leach and he's going to go up against, uh, SEC defenses, but Leach, I mean, he turned Gardner Minshew from a nobody into someone who got drafted in the NFL. So why not?
3: Absolutely. And good on you for not saying breakout year for Davis mills. Cause I was like, all right, let's calm yeah. down about Mills. But yeah, you're right. He had a decent <laughs> year, but you know, it wasn't like anything crazy. I don't know. Rob, what do you think?
1: No, this is, I mean, this is a great move for, uh, for Costello. I mean, I think, Washington fans were disappointed because that was that was thought to be his other option. But if I, if you're Costello and you have the option to go uh, play for Josh Donovan, or Mike Leach, I think it's pretty clear where you want to go with that one. Yeah, I mean it was it it'll be he's as somebody pointed out he's got to be the first Stanford graduate to be enrolled in graduate school at Mississippi State.
3: <laughs> Hey-oh!
1: Yeah, <laughs> but. Um, he should thrive. I mean, like that—that that offense that really worked for Shaw two, you know, two years ago, was not a productive rushing offense at all. You know, it was a—you know—KJ Costello was running. I mean, and I—I think a lot of people get caught up on when you say air raid in, um, either how often you're throwing the ball or the personnel that's on the field, but even within 11 personnel with a tight end on the field i mean they were running a lot of concepts that were you know you know fairly air raid type concepts in their passing game um a lot of bend routes four verts you know some mesh um, that that stanford offense was was pretty good and i costello who's a bright guy with a you know good arm and <clears throat> is as long as you don't make him shuffle his feet as our friend Hipple day has pointed out like he's a pretty good quarterback um he should have he should have fun in, you know in the sec Maybe you won't have fun, like getting to go get some SEC defenses may not be fun, but like it'll be a good experience for. Them.
3: Yeah, yeah. Let's move on to it is signing day and we covered early signing day, which is basically signing day. And so looking now, you know, there's a few commitments here and there. Nothing too surprising uh, today in regards to the rankings. I'll just, I'll just go through them. So Oregon is ranked number one in the pac 12, three, five stars, seven, four stars. Uh, I'll just do five and four stars here. Washington, number two, one, five star, nine, four stars. Stanford, who was third during signing day, which was surprising, had six, four stars. Arizona state, eight, four stars, followed by Utah, five, four, four stars, UCLA, number six with four, four stars, Colorado, number seven with three, four stars, Cal, number eight with one, four star. And then you have Oregon State at number nine, USC. And we will talk about this. Number 10, two, four stars, 11, three stars there, followed by Washington State at 11 and Arizona at 12. Max, anything here jump out on signing day? We had already talked about Justin Flo at Oregon uh, being a big pickup for them. But uh, anything jump out for you?
0: I think that Arizona State pulled in a really impressive class, um, and it shows that what Kerm is doing is at least resonating with high schoolers. Uh, They they really did a nice job in California, but pretty much every Pac-12 school did except for USC and UCLA. And then Utah definitely bounced back because they were uh, in a similar level of purgatory that USC was in. Uh, at least like the day or two before early signing period, and it's nice to see that they bounce back. And then, yeah, I mean, Oregon and Washington, just two uh, recruiting monsters uh, this time. Well, at least in terms of Pac-12. In terms of (laughs) (laughs)
1: that's
3: like a pat on the head, like oh, you're a recruiting monster in the (laughs) Pac-12. Yeah. (laughs) know Rob, I mean, that's one of the themes too. Here is that. Um, well, well, go, go into your thing about how, like we were talking about Notre Dame, not being on the same level as some of the college playoff teams.
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, a couple years ago at Notre Dame, I mean, just a couple years, two years ago, Notre Dame played Clemson, um, in a game that no one expected to be close and was not close. Um, and the fighting Irish had gone undefeated. Um, I mean, it's a little weird cause they play a, like basically like a light ACC schedule and then they got Clemson in the playoff, but. Notre Dame. Everyone, what everyone knew coming into that game, in particular, um, beyond the advanced stats, was that if you went through from an you know an NFL prospect evaluation, um, the talent level on the field was just different for Clemson and Notre Dame. And you know, I think a lot of fans and, and don't like I don't want to like rain on everybody's parade. A lot of fans at Oregon and, and Washington. I, I think this is Washington's highest ranked class ever. Um, are pretty excited about the football classes they put together, but these classes rank in the range that Notre Dame often finds themselves, you know, finishing in like Notre Dame finished 17 this season. Uh, Oregon finishes outside the top, you know, outside the top 10 at number 12, Washington's at number 16. You know, if you want to get in there and, and compete with, you know, the Georgia's, the Alabama's, the Clemson, the LSU, Ohio States of the world. I mean, you've, you've got a, you have a whole nother level of recruiting, um, that you still have to get to. And I, and I think that I think is, there's only one program in the pac 12 that has sort of really consistently done that. And that's been USC. Um, I Oregon under chip Kelly was, you know, they were not actually recruiting superstars, but they were on the, you know, on the field, they fit his system. But I think it's uh, like, don't let anyone tell you stars don't matter. Stars do matter. Um, I do have a little, just like the way that I use recruiting rankings. Um, the I use average ranking per class that, for the stars. That is more predictive than the way that the recruiting services. I don't know why they do this. Like, the better number is like if you added up like all the you know all the ratings for all the everyone on the team and then you know averaged it. That's the one that actually is most predictive. For some reason, they come up with this totally other recruiting ranking. Um, and so, if you re-ranked it, it might come out a little bit differently. Um, stars matter, but I would also say that, like, what what I find is like stars at the top matter. Like signing five stars matter. Like signing four stars matter. Those kids tend to get a lot more attention. They go to more camps. They get more. Um, they get reviewed more. Um, they get evaluated more often. Um, by not just like top coaching staffs, but um, the recruiting services themselves. It's it's a little harder when you get down to like telling like one three-star lineman versus another three-star lineman apart. That's not to say that like a three-star and a four-star are not different. They are. But like if you wanted to like the the my confidence that I could tell you like that the fifty-fourth class is very different than the sixty-fourth class is small. My confidence that I can tell you that the, you know, number ten class is a lot better than the number thirty class is high. Um so just sort of bear that kind of thing in, in mind, I guess you could say.
3: Let's, let's get to Alicia De Artola right after this.
0: I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore dealmaking across sports, media, and entertainment
1: that is a harsh lesson in business.
0: Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together.
1: I didn't want to do another stomp you
0: out speech. It opened up so
2: many more doors. The show is called The The Deal.
0: Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify.
3: All right, welcome back. And again, it's USC Day and one of our favorite guests. And as I was looking up Skype, we record on Skype the you bring it up it's not intuitive at all you have to like search through everything but the cool thing is alicia always pops up as your favorites and alicia is like number one so even skype alicia knows (laughs) that you are one of our favorite guests a uh, a co-host at the Raina troy podcast a are you an editor at Raina troy i mean like you write so much on that site and you do so much what is your official title there
2: um my official title with the company is now junior editor but that just happened so um, I was a site expert, but they've recently changed their uh, sort of uh, employment stuff. So, so uh, I'm now I'm now a junior editor, which I I I don't know what that means for whether or not I'm technically the editor of Random Troy because they did a whole you can't call people editors because it's not like you're not an editor editor like I don't know it was weirdness <laughs> uh, journalism weird and politics. technical. Technical jargoning. I I don't I don't know. I'm I'm the person who runs of Troy. The head guru, I'm, the head I'm honcho. The yeah, there you go. Uh, I'll take well, head honcho.
3: And and whatever you know, whatever promotion they gave you, it's well deserved because your site does an excellent job covering USC football. It, we at of course on this podcast think that a good USC is good for the conference. And just really an interesting team that I want to get into. But, and I wanted to open, Alicia, by wishing you a happy signing day, but I'm not certain if that would be offensive or not. So what's going on with, the, with USC and bringing that class in?
2: Uh, well, well, what is going on uh, with USC? They had one signee on Wednesday. That was Jack Yerry. He's a three-star tight end, the son of, of Ron Yeri, who was obviously the All-American College Football Hall of Famer Uh, tackle for USC. So a legacy. It's always good to bring in a legacy. Uh, Intriguing tight end prospect. He had committed to USC back last year. He decommitted from USC in the fall and then ultimately came back around on Monday to rejoin USC. So like, that's a good thing. That's a plus for USC, but it was the only plus they missed out on, on Mike Drennan, who was a four star all purpose back. They were trying to land from Ohio he ended up picking Kentucky, and that is the end of the day for USC. There was, there were some quarterbacks that they sort of reached out to late, who all ended up signing with the teams they were committed with, and all that. But the, I mean, the, the, that's it. USC has thirteen signees. Uh, the, the The press release for USC signing day literally was was titled "Jack Yeri Signs for USC on Signing Day." They, the, the The press release was about one one player, so it was that kind of day. It was that kind of day at USC. I think the last I looked at the rankings, they're 55th nationally, uh, which last year was a disaster class for USC, and they ranked 20th. So that kind of tells you (laughs) what you need to know.
3: That's pretty rough. I wonder if they were pitching Jack Yerry on, if you sign with us, we're going to give you the best press release you've ever had in your life. It will be dedicated (laughs) to you. There'll be so much press about you. Um, No, I'm curious about the program. And there's four people on the call here, Alicia. So what we'll do is we'll definitely trade off questions here. But, and I'll start, and then Rob, maybe if you can pick up uh, and follow up and then Max, and then we'll kind of go, we'll snake back and forth here. But Is it all just the fact that Clay Helton is in a difficult position in terms of his tenure there? Like, what? It's one thing for USC, like you mentioned, to be a top twenty class, and that being a disappointment. But falling almost out of the Power Five is is really crazy town. Like, what? What? What is it? Like, or I'm sure it's a number of factors, but what are the major ones?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it is hard to recruit when everyone thought you were going to lose your job in October. And then they thought you were going to lose your job in November and then they thought you were going to lose your job in December and you miraculously kept your job. Like it is difficult to look players in the eye and say, I will be your coach in college when everyone and their mother think that the entire staff is going to get axed. So that is certainly a difficulty. The other thing is that USC just hasn't, um, they've sort of been resting on their laurels for recruiting over the past couple of cycles. They haven't. Uh, this was a complaint that I had last year for the when the early signing period began. I don't think that USC got savvy to the early signing period very early uh, to, to realize that they needed to have everyone locked in by December. USC had done such a good job in past recruiting classes finishing in January. They were hitting the ball out of the park in January. So by the early signing period, basically cutting the legs out from under January as a recruiting month, USC was just way far behind. And I don't think that they were keeping up the recruiting uh, contacts that they needed to keep up. I don't think they were going hard enough at players when they needed to, in order to either stay in the picture with them or uh, get, get the commitments when they could Uh, the commitments that they had, they were letting them go because they were not staying on top of those kids as well. So part of it was the recruiting apparatus at USC two was almost entirely focused around the assistant coaches and like two guys so it's been well, well documented how limited USC's recruiting support staff has been compared to other programs. And they're going about trying to fix that this year. They've recently put out a bunch of um, support staff uh, notices for hiring on, uh, on like their hiring website. So they are they do seem to be trying to catch up with that. But for the 2020 class, it's just been totally too little too late. Um, you throw a, throw in as a cherry on top that you. Uh, Clancy Pendergast and the defensive staff were basically dead men walking. Recruiting in Jan- in December, and then the guys who were still there in January who have now been who have been sit- since been axed. Um, it just doesn't it just doesn't bode particularly well for USC. They they missed out on all the big targets that they that they needed to get, and the negative recruiting momentum has just been overwhelming for for USC. And and I don't know where it gets any better because we're going to go into 2020 with again an axe hanging over Clay Helton's head. And limitations when it comes to being able to recruit uh, in terms of giving players and their coaches and their parents assurances that, A, this staff will be there to recruit them, to, to, to coach them, and B, that this staff can get the best out of them in terms of winning on the football field. So it's a bit of a perfect storm, but uh, I, even I didn't think it could get this bad. I really didn't think. Five and seven, I, I understood last year how USC slipped so far. They were exponentially better in 2020. In 2019, the 2020 class should not look like this at all.
3: Negative recruiting was my favorite tool to use at NCAA football 2014. So, um, so Rob, where do you want to go from here?
1: No, I, mean, I, I think I want to, I want to head on one thing more on recruiting real quick, and that is like USC often like had California locked up, and then when they're rolling, they go pick off, you know, kid, you know, top-notch kids from around the country. Um, I guess what was re- really surprising to me was less that they were not picking off top-notch kids from around the country; it's that they, it felt like they like the lid is off in California and not just like your Oregon's Washington's picked up, you know, a handful of, you know, some better players out of California or Arizona state did, you know, Clemson went in and got the top quarterback uh, that was a USC target in California. Um, Clemson already has verbal commitments from some of the top players in California for next year, you know, like USC not signing, (laughs) not signing and not competing really feels like for the top players in California feels like more of a concern for me than like you know like I I live in Columbus, Ohio. Missing out on a running back from Dublin, Ohio for USC doesn't feel like a huge huge miss as much as like some of the California prospects do.
2: Absolutely. And and you're right. USC has been able to Go for some home. Pete Carroll's big thing was you lock down California, and then you try to hit your home runs out of state, and he did that very well. Obviously, that's why USC recruited so well in that era. USC, you look at the top 25 players in California this year. USC has as many players in that top 25 signed as Oregon State does. It's one. So you got Bama is in there, Oregon is in there, Clemson is in there, Ohio State's in there, Utah's in there, Georgia. Washington, Georgia has a couple. Washington has like three or four. ASU has three or four. Stanford, um, Michigan, even. They're, they're all going to Pac 12 rivals or the big national, big hitters. And USC has only themselves to blame. You know, they should be able to recruit Bosco. They should be able to recruit Narbonne. They had commitments uh, from a lot of these guys, they had a lot of these guys they were favorite for from the start. Um, you know, from day one, Miles Moreau who who goes to Washington, the the offensive lineman, he was a crystal ball favorite to USC from, from day one. I remember looking at this top twenty-five in California a year ago and projecting out just like who was USC in the front runner for. They were front runners for Bryce Young, they were front runners for Justin Flo, um, they were front runners for Gary Bryan, who they actually have signed. They were in the running for Kendall Milton, the running back who's going to Georgia. Um, Jermaine Burton and Johnny Wilson, the Calabasas wide receivers, they were the favorites for them too. Like every single one of these guys, I can point to you and say USC had a hand in there, and USC flat out lost them. And that I I don't know how to explain that except that USC can't skate on by when they're not winning, when they have uncertainty around their coaching staff, and they certainly can't skate on by when Oregon is recruiting as strongly as it is, but also the country is shrinking. I think it's easier for guys to go out of state these days. I think it's it's not as much of a burden to to go to Clemson or go to Alabama because those are the big hitters. Ohio State, those are the guys who compete for national titles. I think it's a lot easier for those guys to step away. You know, you can video chat with your parents every night of the week if if you're homesick, you know. These opportunities are there, so I don't think USC can sit back and think, well, we're just going to get all the kids from California when Oregon is standing around poaching them. Uh, but also, when Nick Saban and, and national title-winning head coaches get to walk into the room to, to, to talk to, to, to you know, DJ Ugalele or, or CJ Stroud or, or Bryce Young, and they get to point to their national championship-winning quarterbacks, where USC gets to turn around and say uh, we've won one Pac-12 in the last ten years doesn't doesn't really fly.
0: So the one of the other big off-season storylines is the hiring of Todd Orlando at defensive coordinator. So what would you grade the hire, and what are your overall thoughts on him?
2: Well, I don't think it's a step back. So there's that. Um, I, I, the hire, if I have to give it a, like a letter grade, at solid C. In the sense of, like, you pass, but you're not, you know, you're not going to be, like, summa cum laude or something like that. Um, my, my problem with Todd Orlando is that we don't know who he is. We know what he looks like when he's got a good defense, and we know what he looks like with, when he's got a bad defense, and I don't know which of those is true. He got fired from Texas for the exact same reason that Clancy Pendergast got fired from USC. I mean, their their track record is, is, is somewhat similar. I think Orlando objectively had more success across the board at Texas, but the trajectory is the same. Year one, you do really well. Pendergast's 2016 defense is incredibly underrated. People want to stack the success of that team on Sam Darnold's shoulders, but I will tell you, USC's defense was the the heart and soul of that team. USC's defense made that team what it ultimately became in the Rose Bowl, not just Sam Darnold. So Clancy Pendergast had that all that success in 2016, and then it was a step down, step down, step down every year after Todd Orlando is the same thing. Tons of success in, 20, in 2017. They're like a top 15 defense. And then the next year, step down. The next year, step down. So who are you? You know, Are you the guy who won with Charlie Strong's players? Does that is that proof that you can get the most out of really talented players who weren't getting the most out of them, but then things fall apart for you? I don't, I don't know which way it's going to go, but his track record at Houston and, and early on at Texas – Really positive. If he can recreate that for USC in 2020, then I mean I'm very confident USC could compete for the national for not for the national title for the Pac-12 title in 2020. If if that's what he produces, because the 2017 Texas team, uh, the defense was a top top 15 defense. If USC has a top 25 defense with the offense that we think they're going to field, they're absolutely going to be in the running for the for the Pac-12 title. But then again. Todd Orlando's defense at Texas wasn't all that much better than uh, Clancy Pendergast's defense at, uh, at USC this year, So, or this past year. So can I really bank on there being anything uh, d- demonstratively better? I don't, I don't know. The, I guess the one thing that I'll give Todd Orlando is is I'll give him the chance to prove to prove what he is. The thing I like is that he walked in the door and his first little piece of media for USC was to talk about how the physicality of practice needs to be and how, you know, you have to practice tough and physical and all those watchwords that I sort of roll my eyes at because I hear that from every defensive coach who's ever lived. But I liked that that was the messaging from day one. So maybe he's the hard ass that USC is needed. Uh, maybe it'll work out. I don't know. It could just as well turn into Clancy Pendergast 2.0, at which point USC's right back where they started.
3: You mentioned USC being... Uh, a contender for the Pac-12, and we absolutely agree. I think all three of us do. And it's because of all of the talent that you're returning. I think one of the things that people miss is they they look at Clay Helton, they go, oh, well, yeah, you never know about USC. And, and I know we've said this before, but, I mean, just take a look at what they have returning. You have JT Daniels coming back. Almost all your running backs come back. Tyler Vons, Amon Ross St. Brown, Drake London, who was awesome as a freshman wide receiver, come back. You lose one or two of your like six or seven rotation offensive line. I want to stick with the offense and and including your defensive coordinator, Graham Harold, who's, who's back. So was there anything that really stood out for you in this year under Graham Harrell? Um, I mean, outside of how, uh, oh my gosh, I said, JT Daniels. And I'm obviously Keaton Slovis. <laughs> it's probably, I, I think he's going to be the starting quarterback. Um, well, JT Daniels is back too. Yeah. Like, so that, that's probably, that's a good question there. Like what does that quarterback battle look like? Um, but also can you, can you describe for our listeners what the USC offense was this year? What made it strong? What were some of the weaknesses? Uh, because I just think it's going to be a force in this coming year that a lot of people are underestimating.
2: Yeah, I, I agree that um, I was just having a conversation with um, Michael, my co-host, and he's really pushing this idea that once the National Riders start their previews, some are going to fall in love with USC because you return a quarterback like Keaton Slovis, you return, I think it's 17 or 18 starters from last year, you really don't lose a lot. Uh, the big thing you lose is Austin Jackson at left tackle and replacing him is going to be tough. But once you get that sorted out, I think it, the, the the picture will look look a lot better Um, on the quarterback battle. I do not think there will be one JT Daniels is scheduled to be back practicing full go in uh, for, for fall camp. But by then I think, I think Keaton is already too well established as the guy Graham Harrell loves him. I just don't see any universe where JT comes back and wins that job only being there in the fall and especially only being in, in there, the fall where it's his first time back on the practice field in almost a year. Um, I just think that's too, too too much. What I do think JT Daniels becomes an asset is Keaton Slovis is a very injury-prone quarterback at this stage in his career. Um, he had a you know he's had been prone to concussions. Um, he does get hit occasionally and and he takes shots that um, that seem to rattle him a bit. So would I bank on him being healthy for all 12 regular season games next year? Maybe not. So having JT Daniels. Would be a, an asset as the backup while he's continuing to get back in full shape after the after that knee injury that he had. Um, but but the fact of the matter is USC's offense was extremely potent with Keaton Slovis in there. Um, part of that was having the receivers that he had available to him. He was he did a very good job of finding Michael Pittman and Amon Ross, St. Brown and Drake London and Tyler Vaughns when he needed them. And having most of those guys back will be a big help. Um, I think USC use their receivers excellently. Most opposing defenses don't have the defensive backs to actually contend with any of the receivers that USC throws on the field. The only defenses that really had a ton of success were the ones who were able to drop eight and um, USC was going to continue to to throw. And sometimes Keaton got into trouble because he didn't see the defense properly. He got confused or like what happened against Oregon where they had speed rushers who were absolutely embarrassing USC's uh, tackles on the outside, and Keaton just didn't have any time to breathe, let alone throw the ball. So there are there were ways to slow down this offense, but the vast majority of teams really didn't have a lot of answers for what USC was throwing at them. Once USC got clicking a bit, and a lot of that had to do with the pitch and catch that that Keaton and his receiving core were able to put together. He he had like you know multiple 400 yard games by the end of that season and it was really just because the air raid was running the air raid the big question going into 2020 is how much does usc take a step forward because usc's coaches have all the offensive coaches have all talked up the idea of year two in the air raid year two in the air raid then you get into the point where instead of this offseason, usc is installing this new offense this year the off season can be all about perfecting each individual concept down to the point where you can run it with your eyes closed which is not something usc was really able to do uh, in 2019 so in theory, what USC was last year, which was a quite potent offense that had its issues at times and dealt with injuries to the point where they couldn't, run the, well, they couldn't utilize running backs anymore because they didn't have any. Um, in 2020, in theory, you bring them all back and you have a well-oiled machine with a full complement of superstar athletes who can really take it to, um, to the vast majority of defenses they face. The question that Graham, Graham Harrell still needs to answer for me is can he do it against Bama? But one thing that I was very encouraged about is that when Keaton Slois was in, in the Holiday Bowl, the Holiday Bowl was an utter disaster for USC on the defensive side of the ball. But I think what gets overlooked is that Iowa was a very good defense in 2019, and USC didn't exactly have their way with them, but they couldn't stop USC. They couldn't stop Keaton and USC. Once he was out and Matt Fin came in, that's where they, they started to fall apart. So... Uh, we've seen them that offense now succeed against a couple of decent defenses, still need to prove more. But they're, you know, for <laughs> just to, to, too long, didn't read it on a very long rant, uh, ramble. They're very good, they have all the athletes. And Graham Harrell's philosophy is get the athletes out there and let them run.
1: And, and I like so, Beta Rank last year had had the offense at number nine in the country. Um, they were incredible at explosive drives, number six, um, you know, really putting up some really big numbers uh, offensively and they were good at drive efficiency too. And I was sort of lukewarm on the Harrell hire coming in. I think I called him like the gluten-free Cliff Kingsbury. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah like, Cause I, he hadn't, he hadn't wowed me at North Texas. Um, and he really, I mean, really overshot. I think my expectations big time. Um, Coming into this season, I think one of the interesting things is it's not just that USC was injured at running back. That's true, but the offensive line for like the you know Nthier running just stunk at run blocking. Um, <laughs> I mean USC graded out in beta Rank at number four an effective pass, number 107 an effective rush. I mean that's a that's just I mean that that's like Mike Leach territory. Um, But with USC's personnel, I mean, I guess if there was one thing I was surprised with with this was that Harrell ended up being so I mean, even though they, they did run the ball more often than Leach would have, they gained almost no offensive yards from that compared to what they were doing throwing the football. Um, can USC come back this next year with as much as they're returning on the offensive line and really patch some of that up, right? I mean, some of that is going to be having healthy running backs, but I mean, this has been a little bit of a problem that they've had for a couple of years that they just haven't been able to run the football very well.
2: Well, and the most embarrassing thing about that is that for many of those games, they were running the football against, you know, nobody. Then they were, no one was stacking the box against USC. They right. were dropping eight, and USC still couldn't run against those fronts. Um, there were times when BYU would just, just have the nose tackle, and USC still either would choose not to run into it or would still get blown up because the nose tackle was destroying USC center. So that is a problem that they need that they need to solve, that they need to fix. Um, I really like the analysis that uh, Shotgun Spratling at USCFootball.com has done on some of this where he, he does um, these participation charts where he looks at like what formations that USC was in and how many yards they were gaining out of different things. And one of the things that he was highlighting, I know early in the season, I don't know if he continued to do it later on, but early in the season he was pointing out very effectively that USC, part of their problem running the ball, was they were so predictable. If Eric Hoke was lined up to the right, then they were running to the Right. And if Eric krohman the the tight end halfback guy, um, if he was lined up to the left, then they were running to the left. And that's, that's it. You, you know, he, he was able to, to sit there and call out which way USC was going to run at any different time because USC was telegraphing that A, they were going to run, and B, that they were going to run to that side. So that might be part of the problem is that I think defenses knew what was coming. If Graham Harrell knows what's good for him, he will work on that this offseason in terms of being doing some self-scouting and being less predictable uh, in some of those ways. But the offensive line, the, the sheer quality or lack thereof on the offensive line is something that could also take a step forward in 2020 in a perfect world. Um, Tim Drevno will be in his um, second year working with those guys. Uh, it, it was also his first year in 2019 working in an air raid. So one would hope that he is... Um, more uh, attuned and accustomed to the kind of blocking that USC will need to do in that air raid sort of setup. And perhaps the, the offensive line will be more uh, an offensive line of his making, but there is a hurdle there with needing to replace Austin Jackson. And I don't think the options to come in and uh, Austin Jackson, Andrew Richmond, the two tackles, um, the the options to replace them are not exactly the kind that will inspire a ton of confidence. I think that, that that USC has six guys who can play those five positions and do a decent job, but I have major questions about one or two of them. So that's going to be the, the the difficulty for USC is getting more from individuals on that offensive line, but that's going to come from Tim Drevno. I couldn't tell you, you know, USC could turn up next year and Jalen McKenzie being at right tackle and Liam Jimmins at right guard and, and, one more year with Brett Nealon at center bulking up a little bit maybe and Elijah Tucker returning at left guard and then installing, I don't know, Andrew Voorhees or somebody at left tackle. They'll all find their place. They'll all work together all offseason. They'll know exactly what they're doing and USC could turn out to have a solid offensive line. Just as easily it could be really bad because they don't have Austin Jackson protecting Keaton blind side. I, I wish I could say with more certainty which way it'll go but i'm very much in the middle on that i can sort of see it from from both perspectives of of hopeful and, and pessimistic so that's it's just you know t- it's on tim drevno and he's done a good job in the past so maybe I'm like a lot of my answers to a lot of these are just like mm, maybe.
3: <laughs> well, well, to to put your answer in context, and, and Max definitely jump in after this. But one of the things that makes me sad <laughs> is you want to have USC at the top. You want to you have USC recruiting good players because USC is that national brand, that national name. And I'm looking at your your projected returning starters, which we are posting on Sharp College Football. And my goodness, like it's just. So, if USC is hindered by that offensive line again, it is such a waste of the talent that they have. I mean, particularly. Absolutely. Oh, and, and if you're a USC fan, you've seen this movie before. And my goodness, that could be the most frustrating thing to see. The good thing is the defense, I think is, is going to be able to step up a little bit, but, um, but Max, go ahead and take it any, anywhere you want. I just wanted to highlight that because everything else is stacked. It's just that offensive line. And if they could put it together.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, well, I've, Speaking of stacks, obviously, I mean, Keaton Slovis as a a true freshman uh, this past season uh, has the spotlight heading into this season, but who are some of the other uh, freshmen for USC that were, uh, that stood out to you and were really impressive?
2: Well, the freshman from 2019, obviously Drake Jackson got a lot of rightful headlines. He was outstanding at that, uh, that defensive end sort of outside linebacker role going to be curious how he fits into Todd Orlando's scheme because he he usually uses a 3 man front and I don't know that Drake Jackson is would be at his best in one of those defensive line roles but maybe they use him as a sort of hybrid outside linebacker rush end situation it's a multiple front i guess so that's going to be something i'm going to be looking out for but Drake Drake Jackson was absolutely outstanding the other Drake as as was mentioned before Drake London was um, a bit of a revelation. I don't think people expected him to be the guy that was going to come in and be the instant starter for USC. But he was. Uh, he uses his basketball size and and those skills just to perfection on the football field. It's it's really really fun to see him play. Um, and then Keenan Christen was, I guess, the surprise of of all surprises because I didn't think he was going to play at all. He, I thought he was a sure thing red shirt. But all of those uh, injuries for USC basically threw him into the lineup and all of a sudden this kid with ridiculous track speed is showing that ridiculous track speed, and you see what kind of a weapon he could be. So USC, that's the the funny thing about USC's class of 2019, which, like I said said earlier, like last year's class was a disaster, um, but compared to this class, like, it doesn't even compare. Um, The disastrous 20th-ranked class for USC of 2019, actually they got... Quite a few players who look like they they have something about them. Drake Jackson already contributed. Max Williams, at cor- the corner who played nickel for USC this past year. I really love the look of this kid. He's 5'8", so he's kind of like a Nickel Roby type where he's just so undersized that no one's going to pay attention to him. But I love the way he plays uh, he, in, in the brief things that we got to see from him. Drake London, I already mentioned. Britton Allen, the safety, got a little bit of time. I mentioned Keenan Kristen. So, I mean, looking down this thing, Muneer M- M- McLean was another wide receiver, three-star wide receiver who unfortunately got injured, uh, season-ending injury in in mid-season, mid I think. But he was another of these out-of-nowhere receivers who were looking like, man, this, this kid can play. So in a class that I don't think anyone expected a lot out of, and, and last shout-out to Dorian Hewitt, the three-star Safety who came in and started at corner for USC in a game and absolutely just did his job and, and wasn't a, a a factor in a negative way at all, like you might have expected. Um, and Jesus, I'm, I'm even forgetting Chris Steele, who transferred in and was immediately eligible. <laughs> My point being, I think I'm doing a decent job of explaining how no one expected anything in this class, but the freshman contributions from that class were actually far and wide in very positive ways, and we didn't even get to see Bru McCoy, and we didn't even get to see, see Kyle Ford. So... the 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 roster is still pretty stacked and maybe they're not the blue chip guys you're used to seeing but someone like dorian hewitt kid looked good when he was out there someone like max williams looked good when he was out there Munir mclean looked like he fit right in when he was out there so usc has found some some decent talent to work with um much more than you might suspect from a class that usc fans in general were panicking about because it ranked number 20
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's the big theme of the podcast is that there is, and especially when we get to the defensive side, because that was a young defense. And I think with some more direction, they're going to be promising. You have a fairly young offense with some good direction already that already put up the numbers. I mean, this could be a really solid team in the coming year. Let's get to the defense, but let's do it right after this break. Alright, we're back with Raina Troy's Alicia de Artola. And Alicia, where can people find your work? And this is why there's, there are many reasons why you are fun. One of them is, you know, the, the second or third answer of like our questions was basically talking about yeah i was looking into next year's possible recruiting class and plugging them into the roster like they hadn't even committed yet and you're on top of it so i mean (laughs) we're talking like legit i when we do our our presentations for usc and our research from usc the first place that goes is at troy you have great depth charts you have everything that you need if you want to learn about uh the usc trojans so yeah where can people find you like the podcast and in the website
2: yeah, the the website is uh, rainoftroy.com. We are Rain of Troy Radio on any podcast catcher that you want to look into: Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, all of those kinds of stuff. Um, our our Twitter account is at Rain of Troy, uh, which I run with uh, with myself and my podcast co host uh, Michael Castillo. You can find me personally on Twitter at Penguin of Troy. Uh, so we're around, just sort of hanging out, talking uh, <laughs> USC football and random. Food and basically like soccer, Liverpool stuff randomly, but um, I'm definitely all over the place. And yeah, we we're, we're, you just reminded me, thank you, that I need to put together my post signing day um, depth chart because that's one of the one of my favorite things to do. Just to keep my head straight, is uh, is on the website to put together uh, my projected depth charts. Uh, as they go through. So I had totally forgotten that I needed to do that. So thanks. <laughs>
3: and, and I knew, well, I knew you had a great mind, not only for, because of the depth charts and all the stuff you're doing for football, but just the fact that you loved the pizza hut, cheese, it uh, pizza concepts. Like, I don't know if it was good, but like you immediately retweeted that. And I'm like, hell yeah, Alicia. Like I'm all over that too. So <laughs> that's
2: really... it was, it was good for two bites and then you realize like <laughs> maybe this wasn't a great idea.
3: <laughs> Yeah, it's not the final result. It's the journey to get there, Alicia. Yeah, that's that's the key yes, problem exactly. with that. <laughs> all right, Rob, tee us up here. Let's, see, let's get to the defense.
1: Yeah, so I mean, we talked about it a little bit with with, with grading the hire. I mean, I, when I look at Orlando, um, one of the things, he, he faced a lot of the same problems you could sort of say that Clancy Pendergast faced and that um, he inherited a lot of returning production and then all of a sudden, you know, he was breaking in a bunch of younger guys and the defense got a lot worse. Um, The one positive I would say if you're a USC fan about that is that Orlando did better (laughs) than Pendergast by um, by a pretty wide margin on on a lot of those years. So like in 2017, USC graded out at number 33 in beta Rank. Texas was number six in 2018. You know, USC was 51 uh, unexpectedly because they were really bringing back a lot of production um, for that year. Um, Texas was 26. Uh, and then this year, like USC, um, on defense, they lost a lot of production. I mean, I expected them to take a step back. So did Texas. They lost a lot of production too, but Texas still graded it out at 45. USC fell all the way to 67. I mean, if this defense would have been even, even decent by power five standards, (laughs) USC it was like a top 20 team in Beta Rank, maybe cranking the top 10 with that offense. Instead, the defense was, I mean, just horrendous. But one of the things that USC struggled with this year was was getting off the field. They were number 108 in drive efficiency in Beta Rank. So, like they 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 were a little better at containing explosive plays, but they just gave up drives. Uh, you know, like it, they they struggled to get off the field. Texas was number three in drive efficiency. I mean, some of their other metrics were a lot worse. They were number 50 at containing explosive drives. You know, how do you, how do fans feel about trading out? I mean, like on a lot of things about Pendergast was, was that he was a fairly aggressive defensive coordinator. Orlando is too, um, but maybe potentially getting, you know, maybe having some of those blitzes actually get home and getting off the field for a change.
2: Yeah, well, that's um, what my hope is that Orlando is just a more skilled play caller uh, when mm-hmm. it comes down to it. Maybe a more skilled game planner, um, if that's a word. Because one of my big things that, you know, I liked a lot of the things that Pen- Clancy Pendergast would do on first and second down. But no matter what he did, USC was yes. horrendous on third down, uh, particularly third and long just like and and I don't know that the stats always bear this out but certainly the eye test the number of like third and 15s that USC could give up the third and 12s and those those sort of like um momentum killing or momentum giving uh, from an offensive perspective plays that was the USC specialty so um it might be that it might be that Orlando is aggressive in the same way that Pendergast is but he dials up the right blitz where Pendergast was dialing up the wrong blitz and I was just talking to one of my contributors, Trent. He he's done a little bit of research on Orlando's uh, defenses at Texas, and he was pointing out how um, safety blitzes are a big part of what Orlando does. And and um, Pendergast was more likely to blitz like corners than nickels. And I wonder if that maybe will be something that, that we see a little bit more effective from Orlando. But um, yeah, uh, drive uh, USC's inability to stop a drive or to string together three plays where they did everything right was the most hair-pulling, frustrating bit of watching Clancy Pendergast's defenses, not just last year, but the last two years. So they, they any improvement there will be vast improvement. Um, and anything that USC can turn around and say that they were more capable of getting off the field will be very, very welcome. I think the concern that a lot of USC fans have is how will Todd Orlando cope running a defense alongside an air raid offense that might be more vulnerable to, you know, quickly leaving the field or having the defense be out there for, for longer. Um, I don't know. I, 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 I can't say I watched a ton of Texas's offense, but I de- definitely don't remember them being a tempo offense or, or anything where the, the defense was going to have to account for that kind of thing. So that's one thing that I'm that I'm looking at. But if Orlando can even if for one year just get more out of USC's players by putting them into position to succeed on third down, then I will be extremely happy uh, or at least relieved to not have to view the same train wreck over and over and over again.
1: Well, you can... You can and USC fans can sleep better at night because the myth of a it is a myth that a tempo <laughs> offense wears out your defense. Well, <laughs>
2: Turns I was out over this conversation... the game
1: everyone gets worn out at the same rate. <laughs> See,
2: I I love that because I was having a conversation with somebody. I was at a meetup uh, on Wednesday. And I was having a conversation with them that was asking because, you know, I was talking to people and they were all asking that same question. Like, well, how will we do? How will the defense do with the air raid? How will the defense do with the air raid? And my answer was like, because the guy framed fra- phrased it as though like, well, what it, how will he respond when he's got the offense three and outing left and right or whatever? And I'm like, well, the solution to that is to not have three and outs. The solution is to score touchdowns. And then I don't think the DC can complain if the offense is scoring a touchdown too fast, you know? So um, if, if, if the answer for the, the, for the offense,
1: the problem is the offensive coordinator.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah. If if your offense is going three and out and putting pressure on your defense, then your problem isn't that you went three and out. Your problem is that you didn't score. Like you can go two and out every game, every, every drive. But if that second play is a touchdown, then I don't think any DC is going to sit back and say like, you're screwing over my players or something like that. So no, I'm I'm kind of with you. I I'm, like, I haven't looked at any of the numbers to prove any of that, but just anecdotally, I've always thought the key to taking pressure off your defense is by your your offense being better, and the way to take pressure off your offense is by having your defense be good. So you know, these things are all pushing and pulling together. The,
1: the, the myth comes from that, like the, you will face more drives. Like if, if you are running more, you know, running more plays, you know, like there'll be a few more drives, which over the season. So like a lot of folks, when there's a lot of folks are still measuring, you know, the offensive or defensive production, like points per game. So yeah, if you face more drives, like you're going to give up more points in a game like that, that is probabilistically true. And um, the explanation that people came up with was that, like, oh, the the tempo is wearing out these defenses. That's that's not the case. Um, when I first was building beta rank, I, I said, all right, I'll test this, right? Like, and so I, I I tried to factor in, like, is it predictive the number of drives that an offense or defense has had in the game? Is time of possession predictive? And it wasn't predictive at all. Um, so there, and there's some other research that, um, I know some of the guys at pro football focus have done, uh, on, on this in the NFL and it's, it's not, it's, it's mostly a myth. Like, don't sweat it. Like, I mean, sweat it. If, if like Graham Harrell has the offense running a bunch of three and outs, but like, right. I don't expect that to happen.
2: Well, that is, that is very, I'm going to arm myself with that information then, um, uh, for, for future discussions. Cause yeah, uh, there's a lot of myths in, uh, in a lot of things that people just sort of yeah. To go along with, but that's definitely one of the big ones is that air raid offenses screw over defenses. So if this, I, I believe in the stats, so there you go.
1: But I mean, it really is too. Is like Mike Leach has coached in like people are like the air raid is Mike Leach and Mike Leach is coached in Lubbock and in Washington, like in, in Pullman. And it's yeah. super hard to put together a really good defense in Lubbock and Pullman. <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, and he he, he had a good defense that one year that he had a really good defensive coordinator. (laughs) So, You know, coincidence? Maybe not.
0: So Todd Orlando definitely already made his mark uh, just with all the USC defensive assistants that got dismissed already. Were any of those a surprise to you personally? And how do you think that USC uh, will plan to fill out the rest of its staff, especially since uh, they don't have a special teams coordinator anymore with Baxter gone?
2: Yeah, um, I was not surprised to see Chad Kauhaha or Johnny Nansen let go. Um, The defensive line simply wasn't good enough, and I really enjoyed Chad K as as an interview, but that's not his job, right? His his job is not talking to the media. Um, Johnny Nansen has been a great recruiter for USC, but obviously the last two classes have shown that maybe that's not the end-all, be-all, and he simply hasn't been a—USC's linebackers were— to put it kindly, very, very, very bad uh, in 2019. So, yeah, he didn't necessarily deserve to keep his job either. The one guy that I think could have made a case for himself is Greg Burns. Everyone going into the season said that USC secondary would be the weakness of the defense, and it was absolutely flipped on its head. USC secondary was the only thing that you could really rely on to not be an absolute dumpster fire at times. Um, Not that they didn't have their issues, but when you're dealing with a secondary that was basically a bunch of freshmen, what they did was impressive, and a lot of that was given, the credit for that was given to, to Greg Burns. Um, one, the thing that intrigues me here is that Orlando has hired the safeties coach, um, Craig uh, Navar, Niver? Niver, I'm going to say that name right once Once I'm going to do it, and then I'm going to never mess it up again. Uh, <laughs> Niver, because uh, it's spelled so weirdly, um, Niver uh, is, a, is a safeties coach and he's coming in in that role as well. But if I remember correctly, Todd Orlando has employed a safeties coach and a quarterbacks, cornerbacks coach, and I'm actually just seeing now on Twitter that on uh, Trojans Live, uh, Clay Helton's appearance, he said that USC is close to hiring a cornerbacks coach. So my thought was that Greg Burns could be the cornerbacks coach because he's been the defensive backs coach. They could just have him be the cornerbacks coach and then have Niver come in and be the safeties coach and then continue on that way. Um, letting him go tells me that uh, either Orlando has somebody in mind that he wanted to bring in anyways, uh, which is entirely possible, or maybe the style of um, of coaching wasn't gonna align with what Orlando looks at. Maybe he wants his corner quarter- cornerbacks to do something different than what Greg uh, the, Greg Burns is is accustomed to to coaching. So that one is is something that uh, was a little bit more surprising because I did think that Greg Burns had done a pretty good job given the circumstances. But at the same time, I am a huge believer in a DC coming in and getting full control over who his coaches are. So if Todd Orlando wants someone else, then by all means, Todd Orlando should bring someone else in. I
3: want to talk about the secondary. Like you mentioned, it was for us when we did our preview this past year. It was the big question mark because he had all these five-star freshmen and sophomores, or players that were hurt the year before. It was just, uh, it was such a intriguing area for us. It was actually the secondary of USC and then the secondary of Washington were the two units that I was like really, really intrigued about. Both of them ended up being quite good. Um, can you talk about some of the players on that secondary and what makes them special and why they were able to step up in, in a way that, that was impre- impressive at times? <laughs> not not all the time, but, but some of the time.
2: Yeah, well, the, the number one name that comes to mind when you talk about USC secondary should be Talano Hufanga. He's the the safety um, who usually operated a little bit closer to the line of scrimmage, and he is just—I mean, not to not to throw too much praise on the kid, but he's like just like a mini Troy Palomalu, the way he plays. Um, he he goes out there and just has this instinctual knack for getting to the ball. And uh, he was by far USC's best defender uh, on the field at any given moment. When he was injured, it was very noticeable that he wasn't available for USC over the past couple of years. So he he's the big guy. He and it, it all comes down to, to instinct. He's a, a capable uh, tackler. He's a capable cover guy. He's a a, a capable run support guy. Um, but but more than anything, it's just the way he reads the game. He's very intelligent. He just knows where to be. Uh, so Hafanga is is definitely the the dude. His partner in the secondary Isaiah Pulamau. Is a little bit harder to sort of get a handle on because he has been so up and down. Um, he's sort of he's been the, the the deeper safety, and at times he looks like just a a, a guy who can be a ball hawk and who can uh, lay the law down in the in the middle of the of the field and uh, be everything that that we thought he was going to be coming in as a four star safety with this you know prototypical size and everything like that. But he also, I don't know, he takes bad angles sometimes, he missed some big tackles, and didn't always look like he knew exactly where he was supposed to be. So I don't know how much of that was, was him, and how much of that was failures of the scheme to to take advantage of, of his athletic gifts. But he's somebody who can be very up or down as he goes along. Um, let's see, Chase Williams and Greg Johnson have been the nickelbacks. Um, both of them are uh, sort of semi-limited as, as athletes compared to some of the other guys that are around them but who were able to do this job that Clancy Pendergast liked where the the nickel basically does every does a little bit of everything. He's a little bit of safety, a little bit of corner and, and uh, blitzer and sort of all-purpose kind of defender uh, which I think is a very difficult job. I think that's often you saw in USC's nickels getting burned because there was a lot being asked of them and maybe they weren't quite uh, it was sort of a, a jack of all trades, master of none kind of situation with those. At least that's my reading of it. Um, the, the corners: Chris Steele, Isaac Taylor Stewart, and um, um, Elijah Griffin. OG, sorry, yeah. <laughs> um, Elijah Griffin, Chris Steele, and ITS were the three corners who were mixing up uh, at the for the two corner spots. And you know, OG is a super athlete. Chris, uh, Isaac Taylor Sh- Stewart is a super athlete. Track guy, a former track guy at least, and Chris Steele is is just was a freshman phenom that came in and another one of those guys that seemed to get the game very early, and was able to use his athletic gifts to just stick with his man and and provide good coverage where he could. But all those guys have been pretty young, and sometimes they they were prone to getting um, you know beat as 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 guys do, especially when they're young. So there's a lot to work with there. I think OG might have the highest ceiling, but he also has the biggest penchant for maybe being a little bit overly sure of of his abilities and maybe getting caught out a little bit uh, because of it. But uh, those those three guys, I don't think you can go wrong with any of them as the two starters. I mean, the biggest question is, are they all willing to be you no, know, not have a dedicated starter? There was talk of of one or two of them transferring at the end of the season because they were not the featured guy. But that's always. Something that USC has tended to deal with when they when they've got as many like five star studs as they do at some of those positions. So, I mean, I like the, 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 again. I, I keep going back to like the starting five that USC has can have back there in the secondary. They're they're very solid, very solid at worst. And I think that uh, someone like um, Nyber and and Orlando could work wonders with that secondary if they're able to to click with those guys and and get them in positions where they know exactly what they're doing at all times which has really been like the concentration and focus has been the biggest issue for USC in the secondary in my opinion going back forever it's it's always a blown coverage that that they get beat um so you cut those out and all of a sudden you're looking very very good in that department if you don't cut those out then you're going to have keep having the same same problems uh, that, have, that has that uh, has been sort of tired for USC over the past few years. Um, I do want to also mention that CJ Pollard, one of the veteran safeties um, in that secondary, is grad transferring. So that's the one guy that USC is losing. But he was not. He was a guy who couldn't really break into that starting lineup ever. So, not surprising.
1: And with this this change of defensive coordinator, I think also comes with with it is you know, the big 12 along with, you could argue San Diego state, like when, if you watch the, the semifinal between Clemson and Ohio state, um, Clemson switched into, you know, the, a three, three, five version of the, uh, Iowa state defense. Um, and a lot of big 12 teams run that these days. Um, and they use speed to contain Ohio state's run with three down linemen and, and, you know, two safeties coming down into the box. Um, and then they blitz, I mean, blitz out of everywhere in this, um, USC for a long time, they've had, uh, what do they call the predator backer? I mean, basically they've run a four man front, um, mm-hmm. you know, with, with one, you know, rush, you know, rush end linebacker type, um, you know, USC, I mean that it's been a like, they've sort of really hung their hat on really continuing to have in a lot of ways for a long time, like in rec- it, both in recruiting and, um, you know, like in uh well, especially I would say in recruiting, um, having you know, being able to recruit those kind of guys and send them on to the NFL, you know, the game's changing a little bit. As you mentioned, you know, like when fans ask me like what the base like fans get into arguments about a base defense being a four three or a three four, I'm like, your base defense is nickel. Like it's it's twenty twenty. <laughs> like what are you talking about? Yeah. Like Washington tweeted the Washington's DB coach tweeted out that they They were in dime like almost 70% of the time this last year. And Washington had a great defense last year. You know, USC's personnel – like how well are they set up for running something and and shifting into something where they are running you know three down linemen you know the linebackers you know the linebackers and the safeties as as you mentioned and even some of the corners in the college game coming in and, and blitzing more frequently and um, you know maybe some of the emphasis and the big sack numbers not being on those ends.
2: Yeah, I'm very I'm actually very curious about how they're gonna they're gonna um, transition to this because. They have a lot of linebackers that they can work with. Um, they have outside linebackers that they were that they were c- recruiting for more of those uh, for more of that rush end position, but who have the athleticism to maybe work as a as a three three five linebacker. Um, I, I look at like Elijah Winston, who was a, a he's going to be a redshirt sophomore this year, but he's kind of that that guy that I think fits the mold of somebody who was recruited for USC to, to do the predator outside linebacker situation. And if they're going to transition over to this, he would seem like a perfect fit to be one of those the, those three linebackers in there. Um, Solomon Tulia-Pupu is supposed to come back healthy this year, and he is a guy that has major, major potential, but he's been injured for the last two years, been dealing with this long-term foot injury that he that he had coming out of high school. So he would fit the mold uh, there for USC, but um, I there are guys who I look at them and I'm not sure where they fit. Like I don't know where Hunter Eccles, who's more of the predator predator linebacker, fits in. I, I don't know necessarily where Aoteote fits in because you talk about speed. One of the problems that USC ran into in 2019 is that Aoteote like bulked up and then he got slow. I'm like I was watching. Cover
1: you got everybody's got to cover
2: this day and age. Well, I I was watching the the holiday bowl against Iowa and I was just like, I turned to somebody that I was sitting next to in the, in the press box going like, man, when did Paul Ian not not get so slow? Like he just, he couldn't move at all. And that's not what he was like as a freshman. So my hope is that they are able to get him sorted out physically this off season and, and and get him to a a balance between his size and, and being able to to bring some speed to the table because he, he he has been capable of being quick, but he certainly was not quick in in 2020 and 2019, and I think a lot of that had to do with his weight. Um, so sorting that kind of thing out will be will be very interesting. But um, the, the like the the front is, I mean, in, I guess in theory you could have Brandon Peely and Jay Tufele and Marlon Tupelo to all line up and be your front three. I'm not an expert on this scheme, so I don't know if their body types and and skill sets work in that in that regard. But if that's the way that USC wanted to do it, that's that would be very exciting to me. And then you get some speedier, you know, speedier, speedier, a word, quicker linebackers sure. uh, to work with. But the the thing that USC has is a ton of talent, and all of it was recruited with an eye on versatility every single one of these guys that I'm, I I I pulled up my scholarship chart where I look at you know who's in what class and what position and all that and I'm looking at him and thinking like yeah when Tua Namora was recruited to USC he was discre- he was a safety that they talked about using as a linebacker and then they had him at inside linebacker and outside linebacker like Giuliano Falconeco has played inside and outside linebacker Malga has played inside and outside linebacker Paul Ean has been projected as an outside linebacker in his in his past so There's a lot of versatility now that I'm just looking at it. And maybe that's the key. Maybe the key is just that they have so much versatile talent that they'll plug and play in in one way or another. Um, I've also heard that Todd Orlando is a big believer in fitting the scheme to the personnel. So maybe he might walk in the door and decide that what he was doing at Texas won't work with this personnel and he might change it up. That would be very encouraging because, you know, (laughs) that would show at least some sort of sense of, who you do and do not have and not trying to pigeonhole guys into positions that they're not going to thrive in. So, I'd, I'd take that, but uh, that's spring camp will will reveal a hell of a lot more about what what the, who will line up where in that uh, in that lineup because I can put together 50,000 different potential lineups that I could imagine and they're all very different.
0: Lisa, thank you so much for coming on and for the deep dive analysis. This is going to be a lighter question, I guess, or a predictive question, I should say. So just looking at USC's schedule, what do you predict early prediction for their season record this upcoming season? And usually with USC on the schedule, there's always this one trap game that every Trojan fan has circled that USC always loses. And is there an instance of that this year too?
2: Well, I mean, just to answer that real quick, Friday night at Rice-Eccles on October 2nd, that sounds tough. That one is the one, even though Utah is losing so many guys and they're sort of rebuilding or reloading whichever one they end up doing. So there's, you know, like my co-host Michael is really down on Utah, but Utah at Rice-Eccles on a Friday night, that just gives me the shivers. So um, that one is the one that uh, that I always worry about. But as for the record, so <laughs> I've been telling people recently that, like, I'm convinced USC is going to go 9-3. and And they're going to go 9-3 and and be good enough to get to the Pac-12 title game, but not good enough to get to the playoff, even if they win the Pac-12, which they, they in theory, could. Um, but then I had somebody ask me today, like, okay, but but if they're 9-3, and then what are their losses? And then I look at it and go, like, meh, there's a lot of toss-ups there. They lose to Bama. They lose... At Oregon, and then I think maybe they split Notre Dame and Utah, but that means that I'm certain that, that I have to be certain that they beat ASU and Utah, and I am not certain of that. So, like, the realistic one is probably more like some combination of eight and four, uh, where they lose to Bama, they lose to Oregon, they lose to one of ASU and Utah, and one of Washington and Notre Dame. But when I say it that way, now I feel like I'm just giving y'all a cop-out because
3: uh, <laughs> very though. different that's...
2: seasons involved in those, <laughs> in those calculations.
3: It's like your USC, your ceiling shouldn't be a good Washington state. Like that's their ceiling, yeah. right? It's like eight and four, nine and three. Oh, no, it's like, absolutely.
2: ah, come on. Absolutely. And even with these past two negative recruiting classes, and again, I'd laugh at negative being the 2019 team was uh, recruiting class was <laughs> number 20 and it was awful, which it really wasn't. But um, even with this this past recruiting class that is that is just subpar by USC standards, that roster is still loaded with talent, like straight up loaded with talent. So you, you look at it and you say you get the right coaches in, your air raid takes off, Orlando figures out, USC's figuring out the talent on USC's defense, and all of a sudden USC's actually a real competitor. And me talking about 9-3 and three doesn't look so crazy. But also I've lived through the past two seasons, so I know that USC could lose to Stanford, they could lose to ASU, they could lose to Utah, they could definitely lose to Cal – they could lose to Colorado. They could lose to Oregon, Washington. I don't know what, what oh, the heck well, so UCLA is going to be, be doing
1: really bad.
2: <laughs> yeah. But USC has lost to like teams that they shouldn't have in the past. So I, like, I don't even know. I don't know what to rely on. Michael and I used to have a very nifty strategy for picking uh season, season totals. It was very, very simple. Clay Helton wins at home. He loses on the road against good teams. So, You give USC all their wins at home, and then you look at the road games. And the two that are probably the most difficult, probably you're going to lose. And the two that are that are less difficult, you're probably going to win. So, like I look at this and I say, okay, the two road games that are most difficult are Oregon and Utah. So those are automatic losses. Throw in Alabama as an automatic loss. But then I look at at Stanford. Well, Stanford's going to be
3: trash. Stanford's going to be trash this year. They lost so (laughs) so many people. They don't have a quarterback.
2: So, like, maybe Stanford, it will be the easy win on that schedule the way that I look at Arizona and think, no offense Arizona might be the, the easy win on the road slate. But at the same time, you know, I've seen USC lose to Stanford teams they shouldn't have lost to in the past two. And part of me sees a, the Arizona game as, a like, a trap game that could come out of nowhere and USC being weird in the middle of October. That's happened before. Yeah, so, yeah, you're
3: right. I mean, like it comes <laughs> out so of the coach. <laughs> I mean, right. it comes out of coaching staff, right? Like a USC team with a good coaching staff should be able to go in and say, like, we're we're gonna take care of business with Stanford, we're gonna take care of business with Arizona. I mean, like, and it just isn't there. Like, I mean, and yeah. yes, you have a new defensive coordinator, but like I mean, it's the root of the problem. We all know this and we've and you've talked about it on your podcast and we've talked about it on this podcast, but my goodness, it is really frustrating. I, but I just stepped over you, Rob. I'm sorry, what did you say?
1: no no I mean but like when you look across the rest of the Pac-12 though I mean like people are way too high on Arizona State like this team's. I agree like this and that offense was terrible and the people that even put Slovis and Jaden Daniels in the same conversation are bananas like they're 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 very different quarterbacks Slovis was far and away the better quarterback Um, Utah loses darn near everyone you could still talk me into I get it like that could be a trap game but like Cal, like I don't, I'm, I'm uncertain about the Bears. Like they could be good. I'm like their defense wasn't as good as I expected this last season. They lose a lot off that great secondary and they didn't have a nose tackle last season. and couldn't stop the run. Um, Oregon and Washington feel like, I mean, they get them back to back. Those feel like tough games, but both of those teams have very good defenses projected to come back, but their offense is like, uh, I mean, at least Oregon hired Moorhead, but You know Washington. Like I mean, they're both teams are replacing their quarterbacks. I mean, like there's just there's nobody around the Pac-12 that I look at other than USC who returns as much in the same way that like Utah and Oregon were coming into this year. Well, Um, this
2: is why I trick myself into into thinking that USC (laughs) not only could but should win the Pac-12 in any given season because I'm with you. I'm yeah, and you see yeah, but this season in 2020. I'm extremely skeptical about ASU. I think they're decent, but I don't think they're going to be a Pac-12 South winning team. Uh, Utah, as you said, loses all those guys. I'm super skeptical of Oregon, too. Like, Oregon's another—everyone on USC's schedule, except for Alabama, down to—this is why I'm never, I never—I never log Notre Dame as an automatic loss. My brother got mad at me the other day. My brother is a Notre Dame fan. And my brother was listening to the podcast, and we were talking about how, you know, automatic Alabama is a loss. Automatic Alabama's a loss. And we were even saying automatic organs a loss because it's in Eugene, but my brother was like, "Why don't you say Notre Dame is an automatic loss?" And I was like, "Because Notre Dame is always good, but never great. So why would I sit back and say that USC is definitely going to lose to Notre Dame when I've seen Notre Dame underperform every single season USC plays them, even in years that they win, USC uh, with a couple of exceptions of noteworthy exceptions, USC is always in that game. Whether it's because it's a rivalry, or because they're talent-wise, both on the same sort of level. But I don't ever bank on Notre Dame being a, an automatic loss for USC. I think USC should compete with Notre Dame at the Coliseum. And I look at that Oregon game. And if that or, if that Oregon game wasn't in Eugene at Austin, yeah. I, I am skeptical of Oregon. I was skeptical of Oregon this year. They were ended up being better than I thought they'd be. But uh, winning the the Rose Bowl was very impressive. Maybe I need to start giving them more more credit. But at the same time, I also sit there and go like, meh, meh, no one's good. No, a lot of good, no great.
3: <laughs> that, that is the Pac-12 in a
2: nutshell. Hashtag charity.
3: Hey, real fast, and then, and then we're going to jump. But the, there's something that just popped up. So USC tends to have just terrible, terrible injuries all of the time every year yes and it seems like it's worse than other teams is there anything to that phenomenon like why why is that happening is it all dumb luck is it the strength coach is it like it just seems that when you look at all these other schools yeah yes injuries happen everywhere but it's an injury ward at usc and back to back to back years it's crazy town
2: um i I wish i could explain it i really wish i could my uh, i had one theory which was that usc shared a lot of injury information and because we get to view practice that maybe the injury ward situation was more of a reflection of we knew who was injured and what they were injured with and whether or not they were practicing and thus we were able to took me and a couple other of the, uh, the beat writers keep very diligent track of all of the injuries that are there. At the same time, there were so many guys who were missing games that it's not like you could sit back and go like guys were injured and you just didn't know it. No guys were injured and missing games. So there were like, they were down to their fourth running back. They, they <laughs> constantly are, are losing random linebackers, random, defensive linemen like safeties corners they were down to dorian hewitt having to start a game because they ran out of cornerbacks to play like i i don't know um the the other theory that i've had which i cannot back up because it's another one where like i wish there was some sort of metric that i could judge this against but my theory has always been that usc doesn't really tackle in practice usc's practices aren't particularly physical and part of me thinks that your body gets used to being hit And when your body isn't used to being hit and then you get hit on the football field, you are more prone to being injured as a result. So like USC doesn't warm themselves up in a hitting sense, but I have nothing to back that up. That's all just like I'm taking a wild guess at why USC might end up having more injuries than other teams. Pete Carroll was renowned for having very, very physical practices. And I felt like the Pete Carroll teams had tons of injuries all the time, too. So (laughs) I don't even know. There was there were theories back when I was on message boards during the Pete Carroll era. There were theories that USC's practice field, the turf was so poor, the sod was so poor that that's why USC had so many injuries. So, like, I remember having those conversations 10 years ago. And I don't know, it's the same practice field. So like part of me then wonders, like, maybe that's the issue, but I I don't know, guys. I, so it's, it's not like an it's, ancient it's been...
3: Native American burial ground or something, you know? <laughs> right. Like... <laughs> the, the,
2: the injury luck has got to turn around eventually though, right? Like the injury luck has got to work itself out. Um, but then I look at like UCLA and I've seen UCLA go through seasons where they're down to like their fourth string walk on quarterback every other year. And USC relative to like Keaton JT's injury was like the first big bad quarterback injury that USC has had since I started watching USC back in the early two thousands. Mm, so maybe like the trade off for good quarterback injury luck has been the the rest of the team is screwed up, but then that didn't work for twenty nineteen because Keaton and fink and jt and all of them were injured at certain points so uh, i'm spinning myself in circles here i short answer is i got no clue
3: yeah, it was just it was just super bizarre. Like you look at the other teams and whatnot, but then I know like the strength coach leaving Stanford was a big deal for that program and stuff. So in any case, um, well, Alicia, thank you so much for coming on. It's always great to talk USC football with you. You do an excellent job covering the team and and is our go-to source for USC news. Now that Max is you know not covering USC anymore, he was our number one. You know, but now, but now that now that he's uh, on the podcast and and doing big things, you know. <laughs> no, thank you. Like really, again, thank you for coming on um rain to Troy radio rain to Troy.com just excellent stuff let's leave it there I, I, we're not certain who our next guest is uh, I'm going to try to go in order so I'm going to try to get a Washington state person or maybe it's Cal I forget who maybe it's you, ASU I don't know well we'll try to get a winning team <laughs> a team that made it to a bowl on next time uh but thank you for your time and uh we will we will uh, hear from you soon yeah thank you so much guys it's a blast as always